As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Neil Dutta is an optimist. He's head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro at Research. He's absolutely nailed the better-than-good American economy. Neil, i got to go to GDP first, and then Lisa and I want to dive into this inflation report. And the basic idea, Neil, is Atlanta GDP sees a sprightly initial start to the quarter. Are you at a 3% run rate on a real GDP, or are you at a lesser run rate? Well, I mean, I remember it's still very early in the quarter and uh, the Atlanta Fed tends to get uh, that estimate tends to get better over time uh, as more data comes in. But even if you assume, um, you know, a typical kind of, uh, you know, error term and like, let's say it's all going down, you'd still be talking about above trend growth. Um, So it'd be really hard for me to see, you know, GDP coming in something below, uh, you know, two and a half percent. When the quarter's all said and done, there's just a lot of momentum uh, behind um, behind the economy, right? So when you when you hold things like the level of consumer spending flat uh, to where it was in June, you're still talking about a build-in for the third quarter from consumption of over one percent at an annual rate. So I think that's primarily what's driving uh, the uh, the GDP now estimate. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, the economy is growing above trend. Your own Bloomberg consensus. Um, uh, sees GDP, uh, I think, barely half a percent in the third quarter, negative in the fourth quarter. Um, I think that that is highly unlikely and that revisions will uh, you know, be skewed to the upside. So right now what we're seeing is a broad sigh of relief in markets with some cheering in the bonds where you're seeing basically people writing off the Fed, raising rates again and saying you are seeing the soft landing. You are seeing the disinflation you can call it immaculate or whatever else, that a lot of people were waiting for. What in this data can you point to to say they're wrong? Well, it's uh, not much. Um, you know, I, you could make the argument, I think, that the uh, the downward uh, movement in used cars will probably only build uh, over the rest of the summer. Um, you know, we do know that wholesale auction, auction prices continue to come down. And thus far, we've only seen a very modest decline in used car prices. So there may be some more pass through there. Um, so I, I do think that there's probably a little bit more disinflation in the pipeline. Um, but again, you know, I think the reacceleration story for inflation, it's really about, um, in my view, is the economy growing above trend or not? And I think the economy is growing above trend. Um, I don't think the Fed has done enough. 
Um, and I think the Fed is kind of enamored with this soft landing view. They're almost wish casting this uh, outlook. And I do think that there is a risk that the Fed is kind of patting itself on the back by the end of the year, uh, only to watch inflation potentially turn back up um, you know, sometime next year. Uh, we do know that home prices are rising. While the relationship between home prices and rents is very tenuous in the short run, I mean, ultimately, the asset market effect is what drives rents. I mean, landlords don't charge. They want to extract more from tenants when the underlying value of the asset that they're putting on the market is going up in price. Um, and commodity prices, uh, you know, look, I mean, oil is at year to date highs, more or less, with everyone concerned about China and Europe. Um, you know, I suspect these uh, economies probably won't get much worse than they are now. I mean, that would be my my baseline well, expectation. And there's probably, in other words, there's more room for, for oil to go up. And that's going to have very mechanical impacts on um, not just headline inflation, but but parts of core inflation as well. I've been looking at the pricing in markets of Fed policy and where people are settling out. And they're now pricing in cuts at the first uh, couple of months of next year. And I'm wondering from your vantage point, Neil, how disruptive it would be if suddenly that market complacency is challenged by the idea of stickier inflation, reaccelerating inflation that wouldn't even cause another uh, Fed rate hike, but just wouldn't necessarily lead to those cuts. Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? Because if 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 it's a stronger economy and and, and stronger growth expectations, that's pr- making the uh, the market price out the price out those cuts. I mean, that could be in an environment where equity markets could potentially work, right? So you you see higher interest rates, and that hurts. But you know, you'd expect earnings and expected earnings expectations to go up, so that could be be okay. But I do think, um, you know, to me, it's it comes down to something very, very basic, right? Uh, you know, the, the Fed began hiking in March of last year. And since then, what do they have to show for it, really? You know, Powell talked about pain being necessary or likely. We've seen the unemployment rate actually tick down since then. GDP is growing above trend. Broader financial market conditions are as easy now as they were then, maybe if not easier. Um you know, all deference to the Fed's new financial conditions framework, that that number when it was published, you know, showed financial markets being a headwinds now that that right. has basically gone to zero. So what have they actually done? Um, so I, I think it comes down to something very basic. Either you think um, the labor markets are a conduit for inflation or you don't. And I think what we're seeing now is um, basically tight labor markets uh, a lift to real uh, wages, as a um, you know, and I think ultimately people will go out and spend more money, booming household demand, and I think that'll that'll keep prices um, in the aggregate stickier for longer. In the aggregate, Neil Dutta, thank you so much for the Renaissance Macro. We get clarity now on an August Thursday with David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. He has been definitive over the decades of the holistic picture. David, I do want to get to your stunning call on jobs, but let's leave that aside right now. Do we have disinflation in America? Yes, we've, got, we've sort of got gathering disinflation in America. Uh, we've got the numbers this morning were close to what we thought, but it's nice to see the sort of the core services uh, part of inflation coming down. But what I think I'm, I'm most interested in is actually, it's not actually the numbers, it's forecasting the numbers. Because when you run, when you're trying to forecast these numbers, you realize, okay, new car prices have basically been flat or down since the start of the year. 
And we're still seeing these huge increases in auto insurance and auto repair costs, but that's got to break. And same thing with shelter costs. Shelter is about 90% of the increase in CPI at this stage, but we know that rents have stopped rising. We know that there's a rising vacancy rate for apartments. So what we can see is the promise of future disinflation mm -hmm. in these numbers and really trying to forecast these numbers. And that's why I'm so convinced that inflation is going to get down to 2% on its own uh, with or without any help from the Fed. In your summed statement, and you and I have talked about this over many years, including with Bob Goodman years ago, there's an underestimation of the x-axis. Are we underplaying in our what's going to happen next quarter, what's going to happen in Jack Jackson Hole, what's going to happen to the meeting? Do we need to extend out our study a year out or dare I say two years out to get to a successful disinflation? Well, for investing, you always should because, you know, I mean, equity investing, you know, most of your viewers are interested in the stock market. It's, it's, it shouldn't be about the next year anyway. But yes, I think in particularly the, this time around, I think that's the case because what we know with inflation is it's very symmetric. It actually looks like the Eiffel Tower. It goes up and comes down in exactly that pattern. We saw it in the 1970s. We're seeing it again now, 40 years later. But it takes a little while to come down. And it's because of lag, lags and things like transportation services and particularly owner's equivalent rent. And so as we track this thing out, it's going to hit two on CPI um, and on core CPI by late next year. And that's the track it's on. So, uh, so I think you have to wait for that to play out. And then you realize that, OK, where does that leave us? That leaves us in a low inflation, low, uh, um, uh, low inflation, slow growth economy. I think the Federal Reserve will be cutting interest rates uh, obviously, faster if we end up in recession. Uh, but I think you have to sort of look out beyond the, the volatility inflation that we've seen in the last two years uh, to realize that we're headed for a place of slow growth, which looks quite like a decade ago. I think that's really where it's sort of a return to where we were uh, 10 years ago. If that's the case, why wouldn't you take a look at where markets are positioned and just load the boat with 30 year treasuries and say everyone's wrong? They think that inflation could get unmoored if the Fed is less aggressive. I don't. I, I wouldn't back up the truck because I think there are better, better opportunities in markets than 30 year treasuries. I mean, I, I do think that that's the bond market overall is better priced than it's been for many, many years. And I think there is a one-time capital gain there um, as rates come down, as people realize the Federal Reserve is going to have to cut rates. Because sooner or later, this economy will stumble, and a 4% 10-year Treasury yield will turn to a 3% Treasury yield, and or a 2% Treasury yield, and people will make a capital gain. Uh, but I think there are better long-term <clears throat> capital gains to be made still in the equity market. Right. But, I, uh, but I wouldn't be underweight uh, fixed income right, right now. And within fixed income, I'd be definitely long duration and short credit. I, I don't think you're getting right. paid for taking credit risks. You are getting paid for taking duration risks. Hey, Dr. Kelly, I've got to do this. It's too important. Jason Furman of Harvard just comes out with the mathematics on the annualized view. 12-month annualized, 4.7% core. Six months, the view is 4.1%, a lesser di a, a disinflation. Three months, which is what I look at, 3.1%. David Kelly, the one-month annualized core CPI is 1.9%. Can you go short-termism ter and look at those one- and three-month statistics? Are they a valid tool to gauge disinflation? I don't think so, looking at the CPI, uh, CPI index, because what's really going on is you've got these, these weird categories in owner's equivalent rent, actual rents, and transportation services. And I think you'd, uh, you just have to track what that's doing. 
I, I agree with the general proposition that core services inflation and, and inflation in general is fading here. I do not think it's getting pushed <clears throat> up by wages. I do think it's getting pulled down by competition and right. by increased inventories. Um, so I agree with the the, the, the result, but I, I think that the short term view is really being affected by the way the government measures these things. David, thank you so much. David Kelly, the chief of Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is a joy after Michael Nathanson yesterday and talking to Rich Greenfield from time to time to speak to Jessica Reef Ehrlich, Senior Media Entertainment Analyst at Bank of America, is an honor on this important day for Disney. Jessica, I don't want to talk numbers today. I don't want to talk ratios. Iger wakes up. I believe he puts on his pants one leg at a time. He goes into the office or takes breakfast at some place with avocado this or a glass of pure water. Who does he speak to within Disney about the urgency of a true restructure? Who's he actually talking to? I think that is a great question because there does seem to be a lack of confidants within the company, given the exodus of executives um, over the years. And so bringing back, reportedly bringing back Kevin Mayer and even Tom Stabbs should, you know, give, give Bob Iger somebody with experience to kind of bounce things off of. But the issue, Jessica, and you've lived this. I mean, you used to go in and Gordon Crawford would shake at Capital Guardian Trust because Jessica was showing up to give him wisdom on this. There was a business model. You made a movie, you made four movies for $100 million, and one of them hit big and everybody was happy. That model's been destroyed. What's the Jessica Reef Ehrlich streaming model that will provide cash flow and profit? Look, I think they're taking the right steps. Um, the I, I've heard you guys speak about the, the price increase, which is hefty. There's a 27% price increase for the subscription-only tier at Disney+, Plus and a 20% price increase for Hulu. Again, subscription-only. Advertising 
is not the advertising tier is not being touched because the ARPU is higher um, with a combination of subscription and advertising. So they're kind of forcing consumers into the lower priced advertising supported tier. So that should help the bottom line. Um, they did say that costs are ahead of expectations, so they'll have more than five, $5.5 billion in total costs being taken out of the company. A lot of that is streaming. So it's content, it's marketing, overhead, et cetera, you know, SG&A, et cetera. So they're focusing on that. On the content side, um, they do need to improve, no question about it. And Bob Iger said last night, this is his primary focus. Well, primary focus in order to grow the platform or in order to prepare it for some sort of spinoff or sale to someone else? In, in either case, whether it's, it's keeping it internally or selling or spinning, um, they need to improve the content. And it's, you know, the content on the platform um, has to be improved. He said, he said in the past that it's been getting tired. They have too many, you know, there's just everyone's getting distracted. And obviously, the one place where they've really missed is in film over the last, you know, couple of years. Um, and they ha- and this is his primary focus. They have to fix that film division. So this sounded like a Bob Iger in retreat, defensive, not really aggressive and offensive, not planning out some sort of expansion kind of plan, but rather really not pushing back against the suggestion of a sale to Apple, either in some of the parts or uh, in a large sum. And you're looking at a situation where people are questioning what the value of the company is beyond the parks. Do you think that it is valid to really characterize this as Disney in, in defense? Well, I, look, they are clearly challenged from multiple areas. They have secular challenges with the pay TV universe in decline, as do all traditional media companies. There are also cyclical challenges, which all of the all companies are facing. Um, but, but they have incredible assets. They have incredible branded, unique IP. And so this is, you know, so they're dealing from a position of, of a challenge position on one hand and a position of strength on the other. And it does feel like, yes, there's some defensiveness because they have to fix what's wrong and there's a lot that's wrong. But he's also dealing with each piece of it. So whether it's leveraging the ESPN name, you know, with the deal with Penn or, you know, focusing on um, different parts of the business, they're they're, costs are growing the subs. On sub numbers, I know you guys have mentioned that they lost subs, but a lot of the subs are 50 cent subs in India that don't financially contribute. All right, Jessica, just to give me a, a three-year vision on who's going to win at streaming on a buy-hold-sell basis. Who's your winner out three years on the streaming wars? Well, obviously, Netflix is doing incredibly well and in a great position. Um, we also think Warner Brothers Discovery with Max, which is really just at the very, very beginning stages, is in a phenomenal position given their extensive – they don't just have the biggest library. They have probably the best library in the industry. And I think you guys have been a little tough on Disney this morning uh, because if you add Disney Plus with Hulu, with ESPN Plus, they are well over 200 million subs. So they, they have a lot going on. But, look, there's, there's a lot to fix. And I – Absolutely agree with that, and it does seem like they're taking many of the steps that are necessary to fix this platform. And Jessica, we're being tough because our subs aren't fifty cents; they're like eighty dollars, <laughs> eighty something dollars a month. Jessica, thank you. Jessica Reeferdick of Bank of America, appreciate it. 
Okay. Henrietta Trey is economic policy director, research at Veda, Veda Partners, joins us uh, right now. We talked to Kim Wallace earlier, which is great, because you've got legit international economics there. And with Henrietta Trey, you've got piercing domestic policy analysis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Henrietta, what do the Democrats do on Capitol Hill to advance Bidenomics? Uh, well, first of all, let me just say I wish I'd dress better for this segment because I am just uh, beyond at Hermes, I think we're calling it now. So uh, what are the Democrats doing to advance Bidenomics? I mean, I think right now what you're seeing is them canvassing uh, across the country um, and really watching to see, most importantly, who is coming out in the Republican Party on the Senate candidate side and how they can run an economic agenda against them. So far, it's turning out to be pretty easy, and they don't even really have to focus on economics yet, as the votes in Ohio earlier this week showed. They can talk about abortion issues and get the turnout to be through the roof. Um, they can run against Carrie Lake, it looks like, in Arizona, right. um, which is going to be sort of a Trump versus uh, Biden and sort of mainstream politics. Um, so the Bidenomics message is something they're trying to get out there, but they haven't had to really yet. When you're wearing your Hermes in all the bars of Capital City and you're getting pulsed up here for the debates, the primaries, the election, Henrietta Trey's, the, the phrase, it's the economy, stupid, I've never agreed with. Is it the culture war stupid? Is that really where we're heading? You know what it is? It's abortion, stupid. Do not come for abortion. I mean, Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision was the worst thing Republicans could ever have done. They woke up a beast. It is all age brackets. It is a turnout machine. And they're losing hand over foot. And uh, I, I don't see any way that that's going to change, especially since Republicans keep choke, uh, poking the bear. So uh, I think that's really the message. It's not the economy. It's abortion. That message on the national stage isn't going down well. What about in the primaries, Henrietta? What do you expect to hear in the debates later this month? Well, the debates this month are obviously all going to be on the Republican side. And I think Ron DeSantis is the one that every candidate is going to try to beat because Trump may or may not show up. If Trump is not on the um, the dais for those debates, you're going to see Ron DeSantis just get slammed by every single candidate from Nikki Haley to Tim Scott um, on down to Mike Pence and Chris Christie. They will bring up Trump occasionally, but the person to beat will be Ron DeSantis. He's already tanking in the polls. He was at 30 percent at the beginning of this year. Now he's below 15. Um, that is a death spiral. Campaign shakeups, et cetera. Um, I have a friend ask if we're going to have a watch party for the November 8th DeSantis um, Newsom debate. And the question is more, is he still going to be uh, one of the front runners in the race after these campaigns um, and after the debates at the primary side. I mean, their position on abortion is just as far to the right as you can get, and they just drive each other further, which alienates the entire general election base. So if it isn't Ron DeSantis, who is the front runner? Is it going to be Tim Scott? Is it going to be someone who's not even thrown their hat in the ring yet, like Glenn Youngkin? I think so, Lisa. I mean, there is a deadline of November 16th to get on the ballot in Nevada. And I think that that's a key deadline to look for. I think the money that has gone to Ron DeSantis could easily start flowing to another candidate. I do agree that Tim, Tim Scott is the next most likely, but he pulls at 3%. So really, Glenn Youngkin or any of the other governors could step in. Sununu, I know you is a frequent guest on your show, and I'd be interested to see whether or not um, he decides to change his mind in the wake of the four indictments, or three now, but <clears throat> four becoming against Trump and um, DeSantis maybe not being the second runner-up. There's been a, a belief construct, Henrietta, which you have studied for years, going way, way back, 
that the United States of America will always grow itself out of its debt troubles. Is that shaken right now? Is that foundation, foundational belief shaken? I don't think so, because the appetite globally for debt just keeps expanding. And I don't think that's a U.S. specific problem. And perhaps to be more honest about my answer, Tom, I don't see any lawmakers sincerely putting in the effort to reduce the deficit. So I don't think that debt is something that they are really going to look in the mirror and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't extend the 2017 tax cuts for individuals beyond 2026. They're going to. They always do. Um, We saw that movie in 2010 and again in 2012. It's going to wrap up the deficit substantially, $2 trillion just for those tax provisions. Um, and I, I don't see any real conversation until we get into uh, a maybe untenable place with Social Security. Henry, I want to finish on China, if we can. The Biden administration, as you know, have put out their outbound investment order. The president has signed that. Here's the question for me. It's super narrow. China says we're disappointed. I'm trying to work out if it's just to say, A, we're doing something and B, we're disappointed, but actually nothing really changes here. Is this just for public consumption or is this meaningful? You know, it's such an interesting question. And I was actually thinking about this before I came on the air. Last week, Lisa and y'all, we were talking about the Fitch downgrade. And one of the questions you asked was, um, is the business community responding to what Congress is doing, what the administration is doing on the debt to bring in Tom's question. And what's interesting about this investment executive order is that the business community is already ahead of it. If you all had a great um, chart uh, yesterday, I guess, on venture capital in China and how it's declined since the COVID era, it is a precipitous rise after 2019 and an immediate fall. Um, And that's on the venture capital side, obviously with Sequoia, but you probably get in the same kind of thing in the data on business side as well, where you have the Russia sanctions, export control restrictions. To to sort of get to that question, the business community might not be afraid of Congress and what it's legislating and maybe not this executive order, but for damn sure they're focused on the Bureau of Industry and Security and the Treasury and the IRS and the efforts that they're going through to put sanctions, export control restrictions, investments restrictions, the entity list is going to be updated. Those are real tangible meat and potatoes things that businesses have to respond to. And I think they are working maybe just better than yep. uh, the timing on an EO. Henrietta, thank you. Henrietta Trace there of Veda Partners. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.